0: All right, and because three is a crowd, I'm here today. Once again, as always, in the bunker, Kelly, how goes it?
1: It goes great. Yes. Yum.
0: Yum. (laughs) We spent the week with a song. This is a Bob Dylan podcast. We listen to a Bob Dylan song every week, chosen at random. We sit with it. We enjoy it, or we don't enjoy it. But at the end of the week, we come together to talk about it. And at the end of this episode, we're going to pick a brand new song. So if you're here for the first time... Stick around to the end. We will pick another song. You can follow along with us. And if we're so far into the future that we can't even conceive you, hello. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I've been listening to Bob Dylan for most of my life. Kelly has heard roughly the same number of songs as the international dialing prefix for the German Democratic Republic, you know, East Germany, that today is shared by Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Moldova, Armenia, Belarus, Andorra, Monaco, San Marino, and Vatican City. And this week, we listen to Lenny country? Bruce off of 1981's Shot of Love. Like
2: Lenny Bruce is dead but his ghost lives on and on Never did get any Golden Globe award I made it to sin he was an outlaw that's for sure more I
0: All right, Kelly said so we spent the entire week listening to a song called Lenny Bruce, off of 1981's Shot of Love. As I just said, initial thoughts before we get into who Lenny Bruce is and comedy and everything we're going to talk about today. How did you feel about Lenny Bruce? Is
1: dead. This song is not very good. Sorry, not sorry.
0: Michael Gray called it an endearingly bad song.
1: Oh, that's cute. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to. Ex- I yeah. mean, because like. It's a eulogy, more or less. Sure, 20 years after the person died, but it's sweet in its earnestness, I guess, right? It's just not very good. No. It's not fun to listen to. No. We'll,
0: we'll get to how we think about that in a moment. But a few contextual points. So this was done in a few takes. Um, the one from Shot of Love comes from May Fourteenth, 1981, for what it's worth. He's actually played this 103 times total. And we've listened to a That's... lot of great songs that have never been played I... past the victory last what? week. Zero. Um from 1981 all the way to 2008. That's bizarre. He's still going. Uh, we listened to uh, not just the Shot of Love version, which you can find anywhere, but we also listened to uh, one from the classic bootleg from
2: 1990, Toad's Place.
0: going to release, probably will be released in a couple of years as a bootleg. Uh, and then we also listened to the most recent bootleg series, Volume 13, that just came out this week. Um, there was a cut of that from the Earl's Court show on June 27th of 1981.
2: Never robbed any churches No cut off any babies' You just took the folks in. Shining light in their midst. He's on some other show. He didn't want to live anymore.
1: Do you have a preference between any one of those? Or? Yeah, like the, the London one, the best. I think it was the, the oh, Oregon. The bootleg. I think oh, it, yeah, yeah, it made the most sense for the song. Like, because... Oh, and it had the singers, too. Yeah, it had a, qu- a full band and a choir, Yeah, legit a choir. It was really weird, but it felt the most appropriate. I don't know, because it's such a silly song, so it made sense that it's like, over the top, why is there a choir here? Why are we doing this organ I thing? I don't know.
0: If you were like me and you listened to the Bootleg Series Volume 13 from front to back, at that point, like you don't even think about the choir. Because the <laughs> choir is literally in every every single song. So you're just, you're completely numb to it. So I found that to be just incredibly boring and grating. Mm-hmm. I love the Toad's place because yeah. that solo and the, the crowd just, what's up?
1: Hey. What I did like about the quality uh, of the audio recording itself is that you could really tell it's a small place. Yeah. And like I asked you after I listened to it, I was like, is this at a fucking bar? Because like mm-hmm. it sounds like it's in a room with a, a handful of people. It's really cool. And I, like, I can't imagine being there, right? Like. You're at a rando bar in Connecticut, you said, yeah, Connecticut. and fucking listening to Bob Dylan. It's like shows up and it's Beyonce funny. shows up at your fucking <laughs> local dive bar. What? 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 Yep.
0: And he just played. I mean, he played
1: like hours, four hours, four That's hour long insane. set.
0: I know. You He's just great. wanted
1: to go get your course light, man. <laughs>
0: I'm sure he drank for free that <laughs> night. Uh, yeah, it was incredible. So we'll definitely listen to a lot more of uh, Ted's Place as we go along. Clinton Highland. Uh, noted about the song, which I think is probably pretty true. He's like, the sole purpose of the song seems to have been to demonstrate that Dylan could still write about something other than the end times and that that it was, quote, a last-minute attempt to broaden the nature of an album that he sure hoped that he'd completed. The thing about all of these songs, the thing that makes the Bootleg series kind of interesting is that all of those songs were completely rehearsed over those three years on the road. Same band, kicking it together, roughly, and when you listen to that bootleg series and I'll get into that cuz that's going to be my recommendation. So I'll have a couple thoughts on that, but the main thought is like these songs are really good. If they if if some of the ones that we I had never heard before, the unreleased ones were actually put to tape, they would be terrible because he, he truly had something really wonderful live with its band and translating that into a studio album absolutely gutted it of everything and so lenny bruce these two live versions say what you will i would listen to either one of them over that live oh, over the studio yeah, version agreed, any yeah. day oh, like last yeah so we'll, we'll get to that in a moment so uh what did bob dylan think of lenny bruce what do you think he thought of it
1: i he looked up to him or like i mean he was a. Controller. oh not lenny bruce i mean the song lenny bruce oh <laughs> i think He ran out of ideas I don't know Like What a weird thing to pull 20 years after the fact Like okay Not 20 years Almost 20 years Yeah But like What Did he like see Something that mentioned Lenny Bruce And he was like Oh yeah that guy I like that guy (laughs) I'll write a song about him
0: From Bob Dylan He said Quote You know I have no idea I wrote the song in five minutes I found it a little strange After he died That people made such a hero out of him When he was alive He couldn't get He couldn't even get a break and certainly now, comedy is rank, dirty, and vulgar, and very unfunny and stupid, wishy-washy, and the whole thing. But he was doing the same sort of thing many years ago. And maybe some people weren't realizing that there was a Lenny Bruce who did this before, and that is what happened to him. So these people can do what they're doing now. I don't know. What?
1: The... Yes, you do know. Clearly you know. You had to know some. You had at least tertiary knowledge. You claim you ran into him. Did he, in fact?
0: Well, so, yeah. So that's the thing. He— took a cab ride. Is that uh, legit? Yeah. He said, uh, he said later. Um, yeah. Bob later, he told Dave Herman who that quote was from before. He said, quote, it is true. I rode in a taxi once uh, with Lenny Bruce. Uh, I thought it was a little strange after he died that people made such a hero. out of him." Okay. So that's the whole thing. Yeah. So that was the first part of the quote. So what was Bob Dylan's relationship to Lenny Bruce? So obviously he, this wasn't the first time he didn't just find out about Lenny Bruce in 1981. It was like, Oh dude's dead. Shit.
2: Let me write a thing.
0: <laughs> So Dylan, actually, it's believed that he caught his act at least once uh, at the Village Theater uh, on November 30th, 1963, uh, hmm. when Bob was starting, you know, just to to break it. Uh, I mean, he was about to break it. Yeah, about to break it. And, um, and you know, Lenny Bruce would have been at his prime. Uh, in the poem Blowing in the Wind, which is different from the song uh, that was published in Hootenanny in December of 1963, Dylan wrote, quote, Junkies and flukies line the wind alongside band-the-bomb demonstrators. Girls hustling for dollars on one side of the street and girls sitting on their rights on the other side of the street. Lenny Bruce talking and Lord Buckley's memory still moving. And then we talked about the outlined epitaphs before. Um,
1: Is that like a poem series? It's kind of yeah, it's like a poem okay.
0: series, yeah. So he just wrote 11 poems. Woody Guthrie was a part of, what, number six or whatever it was? That was a part of times yeah. Era changing This one was uh, published in uh, the liner notes for Another Side of Bob Dylan. So that was the one right after Time's Era Changing. And he wrote, Lenny Bruce says there's no dirty words, just dirty minds. And I say there's no depressed words, just depressed minds. Hmm. Um, So that's pretty interesting. So Kelly, for people that are our age, which skews younger.
1: (laughs) Not so young anymore.
0: I've heard of Lenny Bruce. Um, I needed to be reminded. Even last week I was like, you know, what do I actually know about Lenny Bruce? I know he's famous and I know obscenity. But beyond those two things, who is Lenny Bruce?
1: I think I had like a really, really tertiary knowledge of him too. Yeah. And it's because of his, his run-ins with the law, right? So Lenny Bruce lived with his mom and various relatives until so he was about 16 when he joined the Navy. His mom, actually Sally Marr, uh, not Bruce, because his, his birth name, I forgot to write it down. It's, it's like Leonard something, something, not this at all. Um and her last name wasn't Mar either, but she was a stand-up comic in her own right and an actress and a singer and kind of like a talent scout of sh- sorts, like not a paid for talent scout, but she like brought up Tommy Chong and Cheech Marin and wow. Pat uh Morita, who's also a stand up comic summary. And Sam Kinnison, who is oh, yeah. the screamy guy with the bad hair. Um and she lived till ninety seven, so she really wow. out survived him by a long shot. Wow. Um so Lives with mom on and off, but she's in the showbiz, so like she's not always around, so he's raised by other relatives till he's 16, joins the Navy. Uh, he's in the Navy from 42 till 45. I don't know if you know what's going on at that time. No idea. <laughs> um, he fought in Northern Africa and Italy, which there was stuff going on in Italy. Oh, yeah. There was a huge campaign, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he, in 45, he did a drag show for a couple of his, like a drag comedy show for a couple of his friends his shipmates, which upset, quote-unquote, his <laughs> commanding yeah. officers. And then he convinced them he was suffering homosexual urges and got a dishonorable discharge, which was later changed to under honorable conditions, discharged by under honorable conditions by reasons of unsuitability for naval service. So pretty great using, like, I'm gay, you got to kick me out. I <laughs> guess you just got to let me go. I remember, like, when I was younger, Guys would do that. Be like when they recruiter would call, be like, "I'm gay. I'm so gay. I'm the gayest. I can't. You can't. <laughs> uh, not an excuse anymore, Lenny." Uh jokes on you, Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> he starts performing at his mom's live show in around 47. Uh, he changed his name to Bruce around that time too. Did some impressions on a radio show. Wrote some screenplays in the 50s. In 1957, he got fired the very first night he went up uh, on stage at the State Brothers Nightclub for his blue material. His Sexual material. material. Uh. Bruce was blacklisted from television, uh, but would occasionally make appearances because he had friends in high places. They're semantics. There are words that
2: offend me. Uh, Let's see. Governor Farbis, segregation offend me. Uh, Nighttime television offends me. Some nighttime television. (laughs) Uh, The shows that exploit homosexuality, narcotics, and prostitution under the guise of helping the societal problem. And the, except like for a few shows, there's one guy on the coast who's got like a nutty sense of humor, you know? His name is Paul Coates. And he found out, dig, like there were kids that eight and nine years old that were sniffing aeroplane glue. (laughs) (laughs) To to get high on, you know? And uh, so I had sort of a fantasy how it happened. The kid is alone in his room and it's Saturday. The child is played by George McCready. <laughs> well, let's see now. I'm all alone in the room, and it's Saturday. Mother's away, and what'll I do that's good and hostile? Well, let's see. I'll, uh, I'll make an aeroplane. That's good. I'll make a Lancaster. Good structural design. I'll get the ball to it. I'll sand it here. I'll cut that off. I'll get the struts now. Now I'll get a little aeroplane glue. I'll rub it on the rag, and, uh. <laughs> hey,
1: now,
2: it's a
1: nutty here. Yeah. Steve, yep, Steve Allen, comic guy. Hew, Hugh Hefner. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Have you ever heard of him? Um, it, all his material had to be typed out and pre-approved by network officials Anytime he did make an appearance, which is...
0: Oh, and yeah. we talked about Bob Dylan wanting to play, you know, Talking John Birch. It's like right, the yeah, same, same thing. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, well, I'm not going to back down. Okay, well, then he can't do it. And Lenny was... I mean, I think there's a little bit of kinship that maybe Bob's not really, you yeah. know, he doesn't address here in these poems or anything. But I think, you know, there was certainly that stand, Like, I'm just going to say what I want to say. And if you won't let me say it, I'll go see it somewhere else.
1: That's yeah. fine. Deal with it. I mean, not that we're uh, removed from this time either. But, like, yeah, you can't be divisive on television. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not in the 60s. Not before that. Not no. for sure. Um, he performed at strip clubs later in his career throughout yeah. California in the 50s-ish. Um he was arrested in Florida in '51 for impersonating a priest and soliciting yeah, money amazing. for a leper colony in Guyana. He was found not guilty because the, the leper colony did actually exist, yeah. and clergy couldn't prove that he was doing it per se. He made about eight thousand dollars in three weeks and sent two and a half yep. thousand dollars to that leper colony. So, like, and he, the whole thing, he got like apparently had a bunch of different schemes for making yeah. money because he wanted. What's it her name want, to stop yeah, stripping? Honey would be a stripper I think, think that's Yeah, Honey, uh, i wrote her name somewhere. But this okay. is like
0: a romantic comedy in the, in the work. <laughs> a, <laughs> I guess. A blue romantic comedy.
1: Oh, yeah. Honey Harlow, that's her honey name. Harlow. Yeah, Um They were married from 51 to 57. He gets arrested in 61 for obscenity in San Francisco uh, for saying cocksucker and using come as a verb. And it's amazing. So this is the this is the first one. This is the beginning of a slew of arrests that he will get for obscenity. Uh, he's arrested in Philadelphia for possession, um, but right. also for obscenity. West Hollywood for saying "schmuck" in '62 in Chicago. He's barred Schmucked from for, for saying, saying schmuck. "schmuck." I know. Which you you can say that on TV now oh, yeah. on even ABC. You can yeah. say that everywhere. Arrested in '64 in Greenwich Village, along with the club owner that. He was working out that night because it was an obscene performance. So he was found guilty of obscenity, I guess. Well, I don't know what the exact charge was on November 4th, 1964. And he's convicted despite testimony and petitions from the likes of Woody Woody Allen, child molester, Bob Dylan, uh, Allen Ginsberg, Norman Mailer, and others. Sentenced to four months in a work camp on December 21st 1964 set free on bail during the appeals process but died before the appeal was decided his conviction was overturned but never stricken from the record because he died before it passed so like who would care but posthumously was awarded a pardon in 2003 by then governor Pataki New York's first posthumous pardon yeah and he died in 66 August 3rd from an overdose of morphine there you go anyways but what the biggest deal that about him is is those obscenity charges and it sounds might sound weird now it's impossible to imagine but it's because of people like him like weirdly enough fucking larry flynn that we have the the protections we do for freedom of speech like it's weird to think now like of course that would be covered like how could you get arrested for talking like that doesn't make any sense how is freedom of speech just not that broad but it wasn't.
2: I would like an honest equation from any, at least, grammar school graduate. Is the word son of a bitch less obscene to you than motherfucker? Really? Is it the fact that a Catholic president called all businessmen son of a bitches in a Jewish comic relates really motherfucker? If you're interested in the meaning of obscenity, I'm less obscene than a president. If the word motherfucker stimulates you sexually, you're in a lot of trouble. Especially if it's my mother.
0: It is weird 20 years later in a religious period for Bob Dylan to then write.
1: Well, that's why his comments are such bullshit. That, dude, like, he doesn't know what he has done in his life. He like, has this selective memory, apparently. Yeah, because oh, he's man. there, like, yeah. signing fucking petitions or, like, speaking out on behalf of any Bruce. He's like, I don't—20 years later, I don't really know. The, I never—I don't think I know who that is.
0: Yeah. So— <laughs> I just wrote the song in five minutes. MPD. It took me 10 to write Blown in the Wind, so that tells you what what it'll tell you.
1: People kind of thought it was a big deal. I don't know. Yeah,
0: so let's talk about the song. If this was done in five minutes about someone who died 20 years ago that you randomly thought of one night while you were, I don't know, whatever the hell Bob Dylan in 1981 was doing, (laughs) then this is genius. This is amazing. It's certainly better than anything we could produce in five minutes about anybody that we've known over 20 years. Or I mean, we would have been 10 years old. But you know what I mean? If we take it on that face value, then the song is not as bad as you might think. But also, that's not the criteria. You could work on this for a year. Like, why? Why are you limiting yourself to this song that you wrote in five minutes to prove that you can write secular material again instead of just being religious? Was like that? That's what I, was I mean. Saying. That's I. I agree with Highland. I think that's a. I think that's a fair statement. Mm-hmm. Some people like think that the song is like a little haunting.
1: I like, think the, the lyrics verse... could have stayed. For me, the song could have been changed radically. And it song. could have been better. So the
0: lyrics. I think
1: up the lyrics and off. are fine, nice. with the exception. Oh. Of one line. Never robbed any churches nor cut off any baby's head. Yeah. What? What is that a thing? Was there a rash well, of murder, like head chopping? Well, what? But I think that's like the, our idea of obscenity. It's just so specific.
0: Oh, and it's, it's real so, out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why when you hear I mean, it, you're like,
1: "This is a Christian rock album." It, what are, what's happening right now. Because he could have made that point by saying, like, or killed anyone. But he's specifically, like, cut off babies' heads. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the blind, yeah, never robbed any churches. Well, he did impersonate himself. Well, well, this gets back to John
0: Wesley Harding. Like, what is actually real about this? Somebody and guns. what's not? <laughs> Well, in that interview, too, where I read uh, the quote from before, they talk a lot about outlaws, too. And he mentions that. John Wesley Harding and uh, a lot of people. Um, Joey from, you know, Joey Gallo, uh, Hurricane Carter. You know, all these people that you've written these songs about is like, Bob, how do you feel about that? He's like, oh, I don't know. I, don't <laughs> I have know. no opinion. I have no opinion. I don't know. Somebody, <laughs> if I didn't write it, somebody would have. And then, and then the guy was like with Joey. He was like, oh, yeah, Joey. I mean, you wrote like you wrote a long song about it. And Bob was like – in laughter or whatever you know because i'm reading it it's like laugh and then bob was like oh yeah how long was that like a half an hour okay well that says pretty much everything we need to know about bob dylan's contempt for for you uh, which is kind of great and so i don't know where this fits into it like is this a contemptuous song that's like i'm just trying to fill some time fuck you Or is there some heartfelt stuff? Because I think some of the lines are pretty cool. Like, at the beginning, he's like, he was an outlaw, that's for sure, more of an outlaw than you ever were. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's pointed at you and I. Like, oh, my God. And not wrong. And not wrong. Yeah, exactly. And I I love that. Compared to some of the other outlaws we have, it's like, this is an outlaw, kind of? Because he's not cutting off babies' heads, unlike (laughs) someone like John Wesley Harden, who was was a fucking monster. Monster. Exactly. And a lot of them were. And that was a surreal playground but bob was not playing in a surreal pre- playground except if you consider religion a surreal playground he's on the other shore he didn't want to live anymore and his daughter kitty uh responded to that she said quote you are talking about a writer singing something that might rhyme bob dylan has written wonderful songs but i sincerely don't believe that my father didn't want to live anymore hmm. and so that's kind of that's an iffy line Um apparently his finances were fucked you know he couldn't get any you know, gigs, he was blacklisted. He was going to the Supreme Court for obscenity charges. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm sure back then in the 1950s, you know, sort of that that just he couldn't see the light that was coming, like the break open of culture. He was right there at the end of it. And I'm sure for him, it's just like growing up and all of that probably looked real bleak. And he just didn't know it was like literally right around the corner, like a year later, you would have had. Just probably boundless opportunities, and that's what's kind of devastating about the whole thing. Um, and then, yeah, he says, um, you know, they stamped him, they stamped him, and they labeled him like they do the like they do with pants and shirts. He fought a war on a battlefield where every victory hurts. Yeah, I think if I were Lenny Bruce, I would say it's a good song.
1: That's what I'm saying. I think the, the lyrics are fine.
0: Yeah, thanks for writing a nice song about me.
1: It's just the song around it's not so it kills it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not great.
0: That's why it's a you know it's an endearingly bad song. Yeah.
1: Because that piano tune sounds so generic that I can't help but feel like he's just hammering something out on the keys. And I was like, "Oh, write this song real quick. Yeah.
0: The first line, again, it's like, Lenny Bruce is dead. I mean, it's a great first line. And it's like, oh, should I have to keep going? It's like, <laughs> John Wesley Harding.
1: <laughs> right. Or what was the beginning of Dear Landlord? Uh, yeah, Dear Landlord. Yeah. Um, Please don't put a price on myself. Oh shit, I I don't have to write the rest of the song. (laughs) Shit. Shit. I mean it's
0: Bob Dylan's It's the eternal problem. Yeah.
1: And then Dude's got a hook. Or he
0: puts all the great lines into yeah, one song and then he's gotta like, oh shit, I gotta pat out an album. So (laughs) shit. (laughs) Let me take one line from over there and put it. When really Lenny Bruce could have died. I mean, really anything from Shadow Love really could have died for the most part. That could have been him. Great, like three song EP. The album cover is very silly.
1: Yeah, you were really loving that album cover. <laughs> I just I was like, "This is, is this real?" Because yeah. uh, it looks like a... I Thought this was a parody. <laughs> well, yeah, it looks like a kids' bop cover. I thought for sure it was like <laughs> that's right where they got it from. Yeah, maybe I know
0: it's like God weird comic booky thing.
1: Yeah, the pop art thing. I, okay, but like it does. It's so inappropriate. It feels so inappropriate. <laughs> he just showed the wise men of his
2: day to be nothing all that food this temptations
0: All right, so that was, uh, that was Bob Dylan singing Lenny Bruce. One thing that has struck me, though, is how this song, and I think getting into the lyrics a little bit, you've convinced me that the words are actually pretty cool because they do, this song has been covered a lot. Inexplicably, when I started this, I was like, how is it that this yeah. song is just, like, really resonated? And now I kind of get it a little bit more. But I think um, one band that I, I don't really know a lot about, um, there's a a band called Wall of Voodoo, and uh, the frontman Stan Ridgway in 2010, he recorded it for an album or, you know, recorded cover of it. I look at it as kind of a celebratory tribute to anyone that's laid his body on the barbed wire for a cause or for a perspective or for an idea about what art is or freedom of speech or any of those things. So we devoted a lot of our time. We We listen to other stuff and some other jokes that were on Spotify. You know, we're not experts in this by any means. But we listened to the Berkeley concert from 1969, which is one of his last performances. But kind of reading the room a little bit, I think we were more directed towards that than anything else uh, as an encapsulation of what he was doing. And even just listening to that a little bit, you can kind of get the idea of like when people call him, you know, talk about him in the same way they talk about jazz. I can understand that. And if he was... Just a, a little bit more unhinged um, at moments in the Berkeley concert, he would have just been completely off the rails and almost unlistenable. So I liked how off the rails he was personally in the Berkeley concert, but it certainly wasn't as bad as some people. Like people say, come to this because he's actually focused, he's actually there. And for me, I don't think he's completely there. Yeah. And I so can't if he's like trying to listen to his other yeah, stuff, exactly. that's the case because what? That's what I mean. So what did you think about that?
1: Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost 50 years old, which is crazy. Dated. Um, so it's pretty offensive. I get it. It made me understand the whole point of it because really you did. really have to, this is the fucking sixties. Like we talking about the church openly, openly disparaging the the government, like uh, openly disparaging anybody in power. It's not as commonplace as it is now. It's not as like you, you couldn't get on your phone and just say whatever the fuck you wanted to. At any point. Couldn't
0: be, get on a podcast and say whatever the fuck you want
1: absolutely. to. Absolutely. Fuck. And he had to be arrested a bunch for us to be able to do this. And yeah, it's nuts. while, yeah, the stuff that he said, some of the stuff he said was personally offensive to me. A lot of it that, I mean, George Carlin has, has told similar jokes. I mean, Bill Maher makes a career off of doing that very similar thing. And, prior and even us, it. just as people walking through the world in America. Oh, yeah. Oh, to, to To be because we get to enjoy shit that he got in trouble for.
0: Hey, you can talk about what freedom is and freedom of speech, freedom of whatever, but it takes these moments and people to truly test the bounds. Like, what what is acceptable? What do you actually want to have out there in the world? And <laughs> I think something like this, it truly is, and, and he made a point of that in this. And I, I think I really like this because he talks a lot about law and justice and his own trials and travails, which I found fascinating. But... It also makes you question the rest of it because mm-hmm. if freedom of speech in the First Amendment is up in the air um, and it's something you either defend or you don't defend and you've got a president now who's saying freedom of the press, fuck them. Like, no, you have to not do that. Double down the other way yeah. because that is important. He didn't see himself like that. He didn't like go I'm sure when you're in to, it, you yeah, didn't you think about
1: it at all. You're just like, fuck, I'm tired of getting arrested for stupid shit. He made a really uh, – I don't remember. I've listened to a lot of different clips of stuff of his. Yeah. Um, but he was talking about I get – arrested for putting on an act and then the next day this asshole goes in front of a courtroom and says my act and like but he doesn't get in trouble but i get in trouble and i don't really understand how that's fair because it's true like to recount the things he was saying that you're charging for obscenity well what did he say so you get to because it's in the context of you being in a course room like uh, that's why it all doesn't matter you're getting
0: paid to do my act yeah you dick (laughs) he did what i think any good comic would do which is like you look at the whole swath of everything. It's like he was equal and unequivocal in everybody that he made fun of.
1: I think we spent a little bit too much time and we're a little unfair to gay people, for sure.
0: That's where I, comedy and me don't really sync up because I don't know how much of comedy belies me like, interacting with it like that or if, it inter- if I need to interact with it as a 1960s person. And I'm just curious how it gets taken back. That's like the fascinating thing about comedy that I don't fully understand because it's so personal to me. Like, because I don't think about it like that. Because when I hear it, I'm like, oh, I don't like it. I don't like, you know, just, like, jokes about bathrooms and gay people and, like, wearing shorts. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's just dumb. It's not funny. That's something that, like, two and a half men would do. Not funny. But I'm like, where's the subversion? Yeah. You know, and so I listen to it in my own way. And isn't that, is that what you're supposed to do? I don't know. <laughs> like, I really don't know. That's, like, that's why I don't really like, I, we talked a lot about stand-up. We, that was kind of what we went into this with. And I realized I'd been to one stand-up show in my entire life.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough. Comedy doesn't leave a lot for interpretation because you're being told.
0: That's true. So, and there's also an intimacy too to the whole thing. What am I trying to get away from? What am I trying to get from this? And maybe that's the same thing with music we've talked about before. What am I getting from this? Am I trying to delve into something, or am I here for a very passive reason? And maybe like a like a an emotion or an intellectual skimming of the surface. And I don't want to dive in because if I dive in. I'm gonna get kind of lost.
1: That's not how I listen to comedy. Okay. I listen to comedy for the person, personal, um, because it oh, there's because the comedy I like is usually personal, and you can't separate that. It's about them, and that's why comedy is not as subjective. I feel like because more often than not, the, at least the comedy that I enjoy is yeah. is personal. It's the stories about yourself. I mean, obviously you change things to make them funnier. Yeah, you yeah. still have of course lines, and some people do make up completely narrative fictional things. But I like the comedians I listen to, like Cameron Esposito or Wife Rio Butcher or Jen Kirkman. Like, I like them as people. I think they're funny people.
0: Well, if you, with your Lenny Bruce, you pop in there on Spotify, they automatically make it a top fiver or whatever. So you go in and it's like, here's your top five jokes.
1: And eh, you're listening nice, just
0: yeah. as jokes, like purely as just a joke. Yeah. So they are completely discombobulated as a person. They're not actually an act. Mm-hmm. They're just a joke now. And even your people, you're the people you like and... I mean, I don't, I don't know, like Patton Oswald I guess, or whatever. Yeah. You know, take someone like that, pop them onto like a three-minute joke. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of how I do comedy, I suppose. I'm like, I understand you're, comp- I, I, I get it completely. Like where you're, you feel this connection to this person for this hour and a half, and you're there, and they're telling this whole story, and they're, you're a part of it. And maybe that's when I do watch stand up, I do feel that as well. And but I kind of felt that way.
1: Ansari is a great example oh, that's too. A good one. Like, yeah, yeah. You it's just I the, do know that, him. the type of but what you're saying is it absolutely exists as well. Um yeah. comedy albums where you can just or Skip musical wild. comedy is a good example too, where like yeah. like Bo Burnham's talking about himself, but he's also like not talking on, about himself so. and saying really fucked up things, but then also it's satire, so it's like that's tough. Yeah. But fucking Jeff Foxworthy.
0: Yeah.
1: That's just I'm telling a joke. Huh. Told it, yeah. told a joke, ha! told it.
0: <laughs> and maybe there's something beautiful about that. And Who knows? The, I don't know. Yeah, so guess, that's where you. That's a really. We live
1: in a very different age too, where we have the ability to know everything about everyone whenever we want. That's true. So before you could listen to fucking Bill Cosby, yeah. right? Yeah. And we would never know. We would that's never true. know, and that's you would true. just listen to his fucking jello jokes or and whatever, and that would be it.
0: And, yeah, I guess there's a layer of that, too. You've got them on Twitter. You've got them as people in the world. You've got them on YouTube. You've got them constantly in your home. They're and podcasts. Yeah, and podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah that's true. Absolutely. There's, like, a invasiveness in a way. Yeah, they're just always there. And you do feel like you really know them. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that would be really hard, actually, if, if it turned out to not be good. Yeah. yeah but topics um, that he talked about still, like, resonate today. So I found it pretty interesting. Like he started out with organized religion, which makes Bob using him in Shot of Love even more hilarious. What? Bob during this time also said, quote, religion is another form of bondage which man invents to get himself to God. But that's why Christ came. Christ didn't preach religion. He preached the truth, the way, and the life. Kind of just a Jesus, dude. You love Jesus. (laughs) And then when you found out other people just didn't really love Jesus as much as they said, you got bummed out. You moved on. Like, that's how I see Bob Dylan's Christian period, which definitely helps me a little bit, sort of suppress the kind of the terribleness of it all. But the organized religion takes are kind of like really passe at this point. You know, yeah, I absolutely. mean, JFK being elected as a Catholic was a huge deal. He was wrong about drugs. He thought weed would be legal in five years. It's hilarious. But he's totally still on point with rolling papers. I do not know how rolling paper businesses work because <laughs> like, yeah, we're not going to put tobacco in there. So when I heard that, I was like, that is a joke for today. <laughs> I cannot believe we're still making that joke. Yeah, um, but where he exceeds for me, and I think he probably knocks it out of the park, which is pretty early, is when he talks about law and justice. Um, when he talks about uh, like the cops being like a, we think of law and justice as a as a one to one, like the cops are the law and justice, and really they're working for just like if they're not they're not the embodiment of it. They are just uh, supposed to be a sewer, a steward of it, mm-hmm. not it. And I think we still struggle with that, oh, with cops yeah. um, in this country. And when he jokes about the, the court using of and to, yeah, that was- I was like, oh, <laughs> that's a little too, too on the nose uh, here <laughs> in the bunker where we are. <laughs> uh, but his insights into the procedures of the obscenity trial um, were the most interesting. And I think his, him saying that there's a desperate need in this country for, for there to be an obscene is true. But I think there's two, there's like two paths. I mean, when I was listening to this, like just living in America right now, where you're finding out about all these terrible, terrible men who are doing these terrible, terrible things because they are men in power who are completely unchecked and can do whatever the fuck they want. And we've let them do that because we're ridiculous as a culture. And we just bow down to anybody who holds any semblance of power. Um, It got me thinking about like a lot of stuff in the way people react in this country. And, I do agree that we look for the obscene. We just want to continually be shocked by everything that we see. Like obscenity loss, like we talked about, failed because you know when you see it is not good enough. In my opinion, people can say, um, you know, the the oft, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line? Because if we take away this one day, um, or you can say, oh, PC culture has gone mad. You know, oh, my God, these let these white men be PC culture. <laughs> or back in the my day, you could rape your wife and then lust over your 16-year-old neighbor. It's fine. <sighs> but like we've talked about before, I think that the only real way is to draw a fucking line. People say, where do you draw the line? Draw the line at fucking Weinstein and fucking Louis C.K. masturbating in a bush. Draw a line there. Draw a line at Nazis in the fucking street. Draw a line at school kids being fucking shot. Um, draw a line fucking somewhere. That, like, protects people from harm and doesn't shield powerful people from view.
1: It's, I mean, it has to happen. We'll still have, there will still be good people making good things. I know. We're not going to run out of talented people people who aren't horrible. I know. So it's okay that we're cutting loose the dregs of society. It's great. That is okay. Please let us continue to do that. Amen. And anyone that's really upset about that, like, you need people, the biggest problem we have in this country is people, men specifically, not sitting with what makes them uncomfortable and makes them angry. If something really enrages you, like the idea of me even saying that men need to hold themselves responsible, take a a second with that. If if me saying that men are the problem because they're shitty men, and you get offended at that, it's because you might be a shitty man. Like, I'm not talking to you if you're a decent fucking human being. (laughs) I'm talking to you if you are not. And sit with that. Also, hold each other accountable. If you're not a shitty man, Make sure you're not friends with shitty men. Or if you are friends with the shitty man, help them be unshitty, Because men that are like that don't listen to women. So me sitting in this, any woman ever saying this, is not going to change anything. Other mediocre man, tell your other friend who's bad to be better. You see, where the, where the power is, is having the power. We are children of the world, Kelly. We have watched
0: comedy in some form or another. Um, I've been certainly a little bit coy but as you keep saying names of like oh yeah those are people so Kelly after Lenny Bruce like where where are we in with with American comedy I assume we're going to centralize here and what what's the state of American comedy today
1: First we have to go back in time oh, nice.
0: <laughs> This is like the second uh Kelly corner I know It's amazing.
1: So if you had to guess the first American stand up who would you say Lenny Bruce. No Phyllis Seymour Hoffman. You're never going to guess. Mark Twain. Aww.
0: (laughs) I could have gotten there somehow.
1: So he actually toured the U.S. in the late 1800s giving humorous lectures. uh, Son of a bitch (laughs) He would Centered around long-form anecdotes and witticisms. He actually coined the comedy term bit because he would say, uh, when he got tired, he'd say, I can't tell you the whole thing today, so I'll just tell you a bit. So these humorous lectures... that Mark Twain was doing was kind of all that there was for performative comedy uh, until vaudeville. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: So it wasn't just Mark Twain, but he was kind of the, the first one to do that. And other people were like, Oh, I could sit around and tell a funny story. Yeah. It's great. Uh, So vaudeville, we're kind of familiar with vaudeville, even through our Bob Dylan experiences, just variety shows. There you go. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing. So just the comedy in these would be more like sketches, um, it's just like a comedy duo. We're talking to each other, but it's a pre-rehearsed thing. Mm. So, And lots of um, physical comedy, like slapstick comedy, pies and faces, that kind of thing, right? Exactly. You the funniest that. thing that people found in vaudeville were like <laughs> slapsticks speaking really quickly. Hilarious. <laughs> Shocking crude innuendos like, well, I'd like to take her out to dinner. And uh, yeah, uh, let's make fun of every single race that is in us. Oh, yeah, totally. Even the Irish. <laughs> I mean, of course the Irish. <laughs> but – Definitely, especially black people. Yes. So they started writing intentionally funny storylines as opposed to like the whimsy and anecdotes of Mark Twain. It was like people were actually thinking about jokes, and they actually did create the uh, set up punchline format during yeah. the vaudeville years, which um. we we're all pretty familiar with. Frank Fay was an MC at the Palace Theater during this time and developed an improv- improvisational conversation style where he actually interacted with the crowd in between acts and. Uh, or before everything was set up he was the MC. so like yeah. while people were setting things up which was the first time that anybody had really done that before it was just people talking to each other throwing out the skit so he's actually bringing the crowd and he would call it crowd work because they're doing the work for you they, it's feeding off them right nice. also I think we have in a way Frank Fay to blame for all insult comics which is the fucking lowest form of comedy oh, in yeah. my mind like get out of here Andrew Dice Clay you can all fucking burn. get away from me <laughs> insult comics are the worst not funny um
0: uplifting comics please yeah man
1: Come social on. issues like talk about shit that really matters don't make fun of somebody because they're wearing a fucking hat like <laughs> what are you doing yeah ugh anyway also, I don't really like physical comedy either we'll I, get into what we like I have a baser instinct. <laughs> I, I, I know
0: I know yeah.
1: <laughs> when people just start yelling for no reason or fall down I just like as long as they're safe it's just the funniest well I don't like it I don't too know.
0: it's like I think Parks and Rec it's like when Andy jumps over a table yeah, yeah laugh yeah you can't I, mean, I guess that is. yeah that's what I'm saying okay but in the, it's got a context. It's like
1: when that's it, the act. When that's the no. act,
0: yeah. The like Gallagher, like hitting. I watermelons. will never Don't understand. Don't get it. That. Don't I get will
1: it. never understand the yeah. Gallagher. No. Oh my god. Uh, Grateful Marx was also a person. Um, movies became the thing, so vaudeville kind of went by the wayside, which we know that actually opened up the way for stand-up. Uh, Charlie Case uh, performed humorous monologues in front of a curtain without props or costume, credited as the first stand-up comedian. 30s and 40s, Hudson Valley, known as the Borscht Belt, that area of, like, the northeast. There was also the Chitlin Circuit, which was where it was actually safe for black folks to play throughout the country. Um, That was a thing in jazz, too. Mm. It was just, like, black performers were safe in this area. So the Borscht Belt was that for, like, not safe for Jewish comedians, but that was a certain area. It was mostly Jewish comedians. In the Borscht Belt, the guy named Henny Youngman, who's the, if you've heard that, take my wife, please, that guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So 30s and 40s comics are sent, like, Stand-up comedians. We're talking about bossy in-laws. We're talking about naggy moms. That's the naggy moms. Sorry, naggy wives. <laughs> that's the bread and butter. Moms to someone. Um, moms, Mabley, that's why. Bob Hope, George Burns, Fred Allen, Milton Berle, uh, founders of modern comedy, basically, are like honing that monologue style. But not the kings. We're not to the kings
0: of comedy yet. We're just at the
1: founders. We're not going to talk about kings of comedy, actually. Oh, fair enough. The art of speaking to an audience. That's what we're trying to create here. Bob Hope is probably the most successful performer. Yeah. Uh, performs a ton. He's a radio host for a little while. Does, like, military gatherings. He's, like, big USO thing. Oh, yeah. This a- era the Bob Hope. Joan Rivers was around this time, too. Oh, It's yeah. um, different than, like, the repeatable skits that people had been doing before. So that's why. Ed Sullivan Show, which is a variety show. Very big variety show. Um, brought a ton of stand-ups into America's living rooms in the 40s and 50s. More it's all. More personal, less robotic. Yeah. Uh Sat on a stool with a rolled up newspaper in his hand. So the the stool, which is now kind of. Oh, yeah. The stool is such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. stool in the mic stand. Even if
0: you're not ever sitting on it. Yeah. It just sits there. I mean, like Seinfeld, there's a stool. Yeah. In those intros for every episode of Seinfeld, there's a stool. Every stand up you'll ever
1: see, there is a stool. A stool, yeah. Oh, it's a stool. Fun. Either they sit on it or they have the water bottle. bottle. That's the thing. I mean, you got to have it. You got to have it. it. Makes sense. But he was talking about current events, talking about political leaders and culture. So this guy's kind That's of a bloody comedy. Let's get on it. Before Lenny Bruce, uh he in the 50s smart personal, socially engaged, and he was the first guy to profit from comedy records. Like really? before, like to actually records. make some money yeah. off a comedy. I thought record. about that. Bob Newhart won a Grammy for his comedy album in the 19 in 1960. Then Lenny Bruce exists, yeah. um which we've talked about. So after Lenny Bruce, stand up starts moving away from like the setup set up punchline format and starts to the stream of consciousness thing that Lenny Bruce is famous for. Mm-hmm. More individual, like, involved sketches, if you will. Like, just more thought-out storylines and their jokes and stuff. Racial com- commentary, like, actually being aware of your surroundings and making that known and being satire. That's fun. Woody Allen, Trimel Lester pioneered self-deprecating, confessional type of material, which is why he's, like, still heralded, unfortunately, to this day. 1960s, venues pop up with a focus on stand-up comedy, and the first... Solely created venue for stand-up comedy, the Comedy Store in LA, uh, comes around in the '70s. Carson's Tonight Show um, was uh, like continues the rise of popularity in stand-up because it's a big, it's huge platform. Insistful things we do now, like there's always people on late night that are doing yeah. comedy. So he took a special interest in a lot of young new comedians: David Letterman, Bill Maher. Ellen DeGeneres, Roseanne Barr, Saturday Night Live's very first season had Andy Kaufman in yeah. the lineup as one, and uh, often would have guest hosts that were comedians. So like this is all this is all to say that like comedy, stand up comedy is becoming more and more of a fixture in America, oh, yeah. like slowly but surely. George Carlin gets arrested in seventy two, which is the first time anybody gets arrested after Lenny Bruce mm. for obscenity for the twenty seven words that you can't say, which he later shortens to seven.
0: Yeah. Shit piss fuck cunt cocksucker, motherfucker.
1: Yeah. yeah. There you go countercultural comedy is a thing red fox bill cosby and dick gregory moved to white audiences and they get their own tv shows people like that and like steve martin i guess i don't know uh, like w- yeah, having movies and stuff mm-hmm. oh, um, yeah, yeah. it right. became like stand-up wasn't just something you would do weirdly in front of your friends you can have like really big success and you can yeah. robert klein gets the first hbo uh uncensored special in 1975 yeah, that was no. the first one i don't know if that name's right but so that's the first one ever is because hbo saw that nobody could do uncensored material because everybody's fucking arrested yes. or they can't nobody will show them on tv right. everybody's a, a risk uh so well, we
0: can because
1: we're not tv that's <laughs> that's true we're HBO. we're HBO. uh 1975 that is seinfeld richard lewis happened sometime around yeah, there okay. observational comedy is a thing now um 1979, the first stand-up movie, which is Richard Pryor's Live in Concert. Oh, okay. okay. So, like, yeah. a feature film. Feature, like, which now yeah.
0: is, like, Netflix specials all day, every day, right. which is basically the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And HBO still does one hours, Like, yeah. Comedy Central launches in April 1st, 1991. That was a big one. Yeah. Um, I think for us, that was a big one. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... We were three years old, and I, I used to watch Comedy Central all day, every day. Like, yeah. I was a 13-year-old yeah, boy you... for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Wasn't as addicted, but certainly late at night, we... We would watch. Well, that and Adult Swim is happens. like that's what you do. You just watch. that's just all champions. Yeah, swim. Yeah, Central, Adult Swim. All comedy crops up in the nineties. Didn't find
0: with... beer at that point.
1: No, that honestly. was the key that you need.
0: And then when you got that, it kind of was like, well, maybe there's other things to do. <laughs>
1: yeah, our,
0: is... our scope is widening.
1: <gasps> um, all comedy: Janine Garofalo, Maria Bamford, mm-hmm. Patton Oswald, Greg Giraldo, who I believe died oh, like two thousand four. What does that mean? Dave all comedy. Chappelle. So. They would play in venues that weren't typically just stand-up venues. Like, they would play in music places and, um, like, cafes and stuff. And it's because it was less formulaic. It wasn't as jokey. It was more, like, weird storytelling. Yeah. The internet changed the game a lot. People yeah. like Bo Burnham were able to... And podcast. podcast. definitely Huge. a thing. Uh, we let Dan Cook be famous for a little bit.
0: I mean, that was a mistake. We're that's, still atoning for that, I
1: think. And that's kind of where we are. We're, we're, there's just...
0: There's still TV shows being made by comics. Mm-hmm. Sketch shows still exist. Live still exists. I don't know. Still exists. Yeah.
1: Uh, if you do like stand-up comedy, I would recommend, I, which I have before, Put Your Hands Together, which is Cameron Esposito's uh, stand-up podcast. She has different, like, three or four comedians. Is that
0: stand-up with people? She's in a room. People are responding.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, via. so it's from okay. the UCB Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah. So she, uh, Cameron Esposito made a place for women in comics that are typically overlooked or don't get their voices heard, like people of color, or gay people, or women, or, like, God forbid, a Muslim person. Like, So she makes an effort to God actually forbid. invite people that are don't get their voices heard very often. Yeah, that's good. So, that's great. And that's Podcast. the beauty of podcasts yeah. as well.
0: I mean, not only that, but just... Yeah, Everyone I mean, can really, have their voice yeah. Heard, yeah, yeah. This democratization of it. You don't have to wait for a radio show. You don't have to wait for a whatever. Set up a camera. Mm-hmm.
1: Do it. Try. Absolutely. Give it you your all.
0: All right, so we spent uh, a lot of time with Lenny Bruce. We spent a lot of time with Bob Dylan.
1: Then I'll make mine brief. Another video game this week. Loving that. Free Xbox Whoa. Gold. It is available this week. Yes. Okay. Uh, I hope so. Oh, God. Um, the Terrain Test, which is an indie game. It's a lot like Portal. It's a puzzle-solving game. It's oh. set in space. It's really good. Um, and... What else did I do this Oh, I finally got around to watching the second season of One Mississippi. It's fucking great. Oh, yeah. As expected. As you would hope it would be. Take Notaro. Is it good? Okay, I watched season one. It's great. Only six episodes, and they're half an hour long. It was a show. Me too. It came out in September. It's good stuff. And they they talk about Trump a little bit. They, like, her brothers, like, the character of her brother. They're absurd people. Yeah, but they're
0: great. It's wonderful, yeah. The dad,
1: the stepdad, I forgot his name already. He's, like, the best. Yeah, He's 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 amazing.
0: It's a great show, mm-hmm. and it's definitely one to start right at the beginning because it's just really absurd. Yeah. We're just like showing up.
1: It's like three hours yeah. to watch the whole fucking season. The whole it's season. like watching a long movie. Just do it.
0: Yeah. She's great. Okay. My recommendations are pretty simple. Very quickly, I want to recommend two records Converge, Dusk is Us, and Anti Flag, American Fall. Didn't think I was going to like Anti Flag that much. Very good. And both of them are thematically very in sync with my big recommendation, which, of course, is Grant by Ron Chernow. Now, you might know Ron Chernow from the guy who wrote the biography that inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to write the musical (laughs) Hamilton. But that was in 2004 when he wrote that. So he actually wrote a biography of Washington in the meantime. He's written a biography on J.P. Morgan before that. And this, uh, I think like two weeks ago, he came up with with Grant about Ulysses S. Grant. I'm only halfway through. I just finished the Civil War part and I consider myself something of a Civil War buff, but I'm much more interested in like the social and the political ramifications after, you know, the people that consider the Civil War never quite ended. I had no idea about the man of Grant. I just kind of knew him as like a general, as a commander. And because you're interested in the social, political, all that kind of stuff, you don't really think about the military battles. So I've been to the battlefields, but I don't often like, you know, I kind of take in like who used to live here, what happened after. That's what I'm much more interested in. So I've been it's been really interesting for me to kind of get a, a little bit of both. His presidency was really lackluster, and I think that's sort of like colored our perception of him. But I didn't realize some of the things that are um really interesting about him, like his relationship with Lincoln and uh and Sherman, and I've recommended another book on the Civil War about um William Tecumseh Sherman here, and I kinda knew that they were friends, but I didn't realize this like deep, abiding friendship that the two had. And really they would have never been able to do what they did, beating the, the South, if it weren't for uh, the two of them together. Um, I didn't really know that he armed free blacks. Uh, he suspended prisoner exchanges with the South when they didn't treat black men as the same class, if you will, as white men. Like, they're both soldiers, but they would, in a prisoner exchange, they would give back the white soldiers before the black soldiers. Mm. And, and Grant said, if you don't stop doing that, you're not getting any soldiers back. We're not going to exchange. That was an integral stand, especially with what Lincoln was doing at the time. Also, learned that he was invited to Fort Theater by Lincoln, and he would have been there that night. I didn't realize that he was actually going to k- get killed. Like he was part of the the list to be shot. So he was shot in the theater. Lincoln was uh, assassinated. Grant was supposed to be there. It's really crazy. And after Johnson was, um, you know, became the president, um, Grant remarked, "You know, Reconstruction has been set back. No telling how far." And I would say, we're still in Reconstruction. It's very much still Reconstruction. Like taking him out of, who's buried in Grant's tomb? We brought up Groucho Marx. You know, he would always ask that question. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant? So he would give people a prize for Grant because everybody gets a prize. But that's not the right answer because they're not buried. They're entombed above ground in the mausoleum oh, in Grant's tomb. That's the answer. But that's all we know of Grant's. Over 150 years, he's certainly fallen out of favor. But I think some of the things that we can learn from from Grant, some of them are trite. Um, one of them is never give up. Four years before, he was, he was commanding a million soldiers. He was selling firewood oh. in St. Louis, oh making nothing, living in a cabin. Um, but the ones that are more profound is like his unshaken nerves. Things would happen and he just unflinching just completely composed and, and together uh his acknowledgement of his personal failures for him he was, an, he was he had alcoholism in his blood and this dogged him for his entire life essentially people always just said he was a butcher he was drunk when he was doing all these missions he just coasted while other people did the work so that was something that he personally reckoned with and he tried his best not to you know not to fall prey to to easy you know failure uh he was he was humble. Uh, he showed deference to his colleagues. Every time somebody would say, General Grant, your God has shined down upon you. He's like, no, 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 I couldn't have been here if it wasn't for Sherman, if it wasn't for Sheridan, if it wasn't for all my men. Like uh, His devotion to family is something that's also noteworthy of any time in history. People are often really quick to jump out on other people and you know go with the easy stuff. And he stuck through some really hard times. Um, he was a man who didn't speak a lot, but he let his actions speak for him. He didn't boast, he didn't whine, and especially in the war, he just acted. And he made a point of like, if I make a mistake today and it's the wrong mistake, it'd be much less costly, costly for us to turn around the next day and do the other thing instead of us sitting around for a year contemplating what to do. Mm. So let's just do it. And if it's wrong, we'll fix it. But we have to act. To not act is to fail. Yeah. I just want to see Grant like brought back to some pantheon of like, I don't know, some kind of common sacrifice in, in America. And it's not just like white military men generals, but like. I want to start building an inclusive world of sacrifice and about what it means to be an American. In the Civil War, the thing we always think about is either if it's the lost cause, states' rights bullshit, like, we get lost in that. I think that there's a a danger on the other side saying that it's all just about, like, human emancipation. Like, it was always about slavery. That's also not completely true. That was a huge driving force, but that wasn't the only thing that was being fought. It was also the idea of a union. It's the idea of all of us together, in it together— and bringing all those diverse opinions and thoughts into something that's functional and that we can all live with. This is something unrivaled in world history. And it sucks that we're like tearing ourselves apart in this country because tribalism is so much easier than like living next to someone who's brown. And I, you know, I, again, I don't know what Grant would think of this world today. I mean, it's really hard to imagine what any of them would have thought about the world today. But I think there's a lot of lessons from these people just in the way that they conduct their lives that. I don't know, you can draw a little bit of inspiration, especially people that do struggle with certain things or, you know, want to believe that they can have a million people following them or something like that. You know, it seems inconceivable, but is it? But I highly recommend it. Just like Vietnam, I think this is required history that all Americans should know. I feel better. Yeah?
1: I feel like I, I know more.
0: About Ulysses S. Grant? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should just tear down Robert E. Lee's of the world and put up some statues of... Black people and women and all kinds of people um, and just kind of recognize that like, yeah, white supremacy is not what this country should stand for. Weird. Weird. So, of course, that we've already kind of touched on is the Bootleg Series Volume 13. Mainly what we're going to do with it. So this is kind of admin while also talking about the Bootleg Series. It's really good. The performances are great. It's great. Listen to it if you're a Bob Dylan fan. However, what are we going to do with it? So I'm not going to add any songs um, because that would set back about a third of the work here that we've done at Sun on the Window.
1: Oh, God.
0: So those songs, I'm going to date them. And when we get to the albums, we'll listen to them. Because the way, like I brought up before, the way that he wrote these, he would just kind of like play them live, write them live, do all that. And then he would go to the studio and record a watered down, neutered version of them. So when we get to, like, when we listen to Shot of Love and when we listen to Saved, whenever that happens, whatever the songs are from this bootleg that were played around that time that never got recorded or whatever, we'll listen to them then. So we're not going to get into it. Also, I feel weird listening to weird gospel songs. Some of them are pretty fun and, like, kind of subversive and cool, and I kind of like them. But some of them are just, like, like their song titles are um, I Will Love Him, Jesus is the One, and Yonder Comes Sin. Like. Oh, Hey, that would already suck if they were on fucking Shot of Love and we've already committed to this concept of what we're doing at this podcast. But we don't have to keep doing this to ourselves. <laughs> we've, we can make a stand. So I'm not going to do that. We're not going to add any more at all unless it's a brand new Bob Dylan album to our existing list. So we will stay under 500, Kelly. Good for us. Good for us. And, and currently, you know, if you think about it, we're in like our freewheeling stage. So, you know, if we don't want to get to our Christian stage. Which one of us do you think will have the born-again stage? Probably you.
1: Oh, most likely.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't that be weird? Yeah. Your born-again stage? I can't wait for the born-again period of this podcast. Oh. Where people later will have to reappraise how this podcast went right in the, you know, (laughs) roughly in the middle. It's like there was a good 60 episodes where Kelly was just crazy born-again Christian.
1: I mean, we could have a, like, a metaphorical period of that.
0: All right, Kelly, one out of 497, what you got?
1: Ooh, I should have been thinking about a number this whole time. It's such an easy thing to say a number. F- what? 430.
0: <laughs> 430. really difficult. It's a bad number. Why? Because it's wrong. But it's a oh. great song. <laughs> Changing of the Guards, which you will recognize as the intro to our S- Sign on the Window Presents, Game of Thrones.
1: That's right.
0: Which is like a really touchy subject here at Sign on the Window's bunker headquarters. So we're just going <laughs> to... We're gonna, we're gonna. I'm good with, yeah. Was so that one, in
1: the Rolling Thunder too? I feel like I heard that. No, but I no. guess just from that. No, I don't episodes. think
0: it's probably never played it. Nee, 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 nee. Hell yeah, you got it. <laughs> okay, all right. So 122 was the number. This is a great one. So this is actually going to be our second um, "Oh Mercy" song from 1989. "Oh Mercy." Our last one was "Ring Them Bells," which is one of my personal favorites. Mm-hmm. This is the song right before that. It's called "Everything Is Broken."
1: Oh yeah! I, I also
0: that. sang. Oh my god! I sang a version of this for, Game of for our Game of Thrones. <laughs> Christ, this
1: is so sad.
0: man, <laughs> it's all coming back to Game of Thrones. I tried to forget it. I tried to forget like we did that we did three that. episodes a week. That was intense. But anyways, okay. next week, "Everything Is Broken," 1989. We don't have to like listen to a whole comedy special. It's great.
1: <laughs> I was like, "You're about to to laugh," but you're not. No, that's that that
0: probably a bad idea, actually. <laughs> Have mercy.
1: Oh, no. Good night. What's his name? Kitzapolos? Jessica Kitzapolos. No Send it across the nation. You're know, wasted. That's true.